So 2020, it seemed like it was last year, but it was two years ago. I remember standing up here thinking, how am I going to introduce the new year? 2020, you know, vision statements seemed to be apropos, but probably played out. And then 2020 actually played out. And it wasn't a very good year for our church, but it was a good year. Um, we met online. <laughs> we met in our cars. We met in tents. <laughs> and the church went on. And then 2021 came around, and it was uh, more uncertainty. Um, good to see you, Aaron. And oh, we've lost people, right? People have gone home to be with the Lord, and many of you have known people in your family, either close or friends. And um, so 2022 is... As it was mentioned, this is the last Sunday of the year. And though Jesus maybe doesn't go off the calendar, right? It's kind of those are earmarks and landmarks for us, kind of metrics by which we gauge things and stuff like that. I myself am looking forward to 2022. And I, you're like, well, Neil, it seems like Churches have shut down, businesses have shut down, people have lost their jobs, people have lost their livelihood, inflation's rising. Build back better doesn't seem much better. But Christ is better. He's better than the economy, he's better than kings, um, he's better than uh, covenants people make with each other. He supersedes it all. I'm really excited about the new theme, uh, the new direction that I'd like to take the church in. It's not as radical as I was going to do because of the amount of people that we have. I'm like, it's not going to work. I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to make some changes that I hope, uh, you know, subtle changes. We still have Sunday night, Sunday school, uh, main service, but we're going to change things up a little bit, and uh, I'll be introducing that in the coming weeks. It's really designed to get us to um, be encouraged, to increase our fellowship with each other, uh, our relationship with God and our relationship with others, and, and hopefully generate some synergy and some enthusiasm uh, for the things of God and the future uh, with God and what he has planned for this church, and by that, by our individuals. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of fear porn and fear mongering and fear media and fear this and fear that, right? <laughs> There's some things that I'd like to share with you that I think God's doing in my heart, probably in your heart as well, um, where I just want to trust Christ. I, I want to really walk by faith, not by sight and not by fear. And to put some of that stuff in the rearview mirror, I think a key ingredient in moving forward is finalizing this area of forgiveness. And so what I'd like to talk about as we wrap this year up, think about the statement from John 19.30 where Jesus says, it is finished. It's finished. What did he finish? He finished the final forever, once for all, payment for sin for any and all that would put their faith alone in Christ alone. I think this one key element of the gospel, it's the first half of the gospel. See, the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. If Jesus only died for our sins but he never rose from the dead, we wouldn't have life. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, it's like if I fell over dead right now and I died of um, uh, some sort of weird disease. And then Brian had the cure and he came up and gave me the inoculation. What I need 
is life. <laughs> I don't need a cure for what I died from. What dead people need is life. And we've all, we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. So Jesus takes care of the problem of sin where he forgives it, removes it, buries it, blots it out, casts it away, remembers it no more. He deals with that on the cross once and for all. But I think where Christians are at is they're like, yeah, but we put, we put like a comma at the cross where Jesus puts a big explanation point. It's finished. So if we don't get this one thing settled in our mind, it's hard to forgive others when you yourself, if you do, do not realize and understand that you're fully, freely, completely, absolutely forgiven. How could you treat others any differently than how you think God's treating you? So we're going to get into that. We need to, we need to understand that we're forgiven. We need to forgive ourselves. Lighten up on your own selves as well. And then when we have that sort of connection with God and we we really understand the truth of the first half of the gospel that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, completely forgive us. Then we could be free to now live a life that's forgiving towards others. Because if we're unforgiving to others, could it be that we do not understand how we were completely forgiven? So I want to kind of lay the groundwork here. First, understand that we have been completely, forever, finally forgiven in Christ. Something that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, could not provide. And many of us have an obsession with confession. We have an obsession with like repeated death, repeated sacrifice. We're no different than Catholics many times in that we keep getting the same thing that was already given to us in Christ. And we get it off of one verse, and I know what verse you're thinking of, but it's only one verse when there's hundreds of them that say you're completely forgiven. So let's turn to the, the first text, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Jesus... We have redemption. We've been redeemed, purchased, bought. What's the currency? Blood. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So if you're going to get more forgiveness than the blood of Jesus Christ, how are you going to get it? By what means? What are you going to use to purchase it? Is it the death of more animals? Is it, is it you and your accounting abilities? Keep short accounts? How are you going to be completely, absolutely forgiven? Well, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So this was his ability, his offer, his idea, uh, his resources, his currency, which was the precious, spotless, sinless blood of the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. Look at this quote. If we don't finalize the cross, we will never realize the resurrection. If we don't finalize the cross, we will never realize the resurrection. It's almost like the children of Israel. They left Egypt by putting the blood on the doorposts, right? It's the death of the lamb. That led them out of Egypt. Did that generation go into the promised land? No, they all died. That's the book of Numbers. It's a census, except Joshua and Caleb. The only original, the only OGs that went in. And what, what identifies those two people when they spied out the lands, the 12 spies, and they came back? What identifies Joshua and Caleb? What identifies them as faith? 
So they had the faith that the death that led them out is the life that could lead them in because the promised land represents a, a place of grace, a place of life, a place of rest. That's the second half of the gospel. How many Christians are living in the wilderness, wandering, complaining, always focused on the death, the death, the death, but never thinking about the life, the life, the life. That's why it's so key If we don't finalize the cross, we'll never realize the resurrection. If you don't get this one thing down that seems to be too good to be true, even though it's what we tell people, hey, come to Jesus just as you are. They've got a beer can, a bag of cocaine, and, you know, they've got all of their addictions and paraphernalia. They're cussing, they're swearing, they can't wait to gamble. And we say... Come to Jesus just as you are. He'll forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. We believe it for other people. Do we believe it for ourselves? My wife and I talk about this. She's like, it's like I believe the gospel is good enough for other people. But I don't believe it. Not the gospel, but like the grace of God is sufficient for other people. Like God, he's almost more loving and He'll do more for them, and he's more concerned with them than he is for me. And it's just something that we wrestle with. Because though the gospel's good enough for someone else, it's sometimes too good to be true for us individually. So I'm going to ask you the question, are your sins completely, absolutely forgiven? Do you believe Jesus died for all of your sins? I ask this when I teach on this topic. How many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died for them? And how many did he pay for? Did he pay for the ones you haven't committed yet? What if there was one forgotten sin? Can someone with sin enter into the perfect presence of God in heaven? That's like that's like putting like um, you know, hey, Mike, I only put ten percent cocaine and marijuana in, the, in your Christmas brownies I gave you. you know? You're like, I'm not going to eat that. Or maybe Mike's like, whoa, cool, thanks. Happy Christmas. <laughs> All I'm saying is, like, I don't know why I got the 10%, because 10% of venom is poisonous, 90% is protein and rattlesnakes, for example. right? And so the, it's the little bit that kills. I, what, how much strychnine is in rat poisoning? It's like a very small percentage. So God's not going to allow strychnine into heaven. He has to completely forgive, absolutely cleanse, totally blot out, and remove, as far as the east is from the west, all of your sin in order to make you fit for his presence and fit for heaven. Why do we think it's an impartial forgiveness and not a total, absolute forgiveness? good enough for others, but is it good enough for us? Now, if and when you sin, repent. Just say, God, I'm sorry. Thank you that you've forgiven me all my sin. I know I've just messed up. But thank you that all my sins are forgiven. You confess, you repent. But to get more forgiveness than what you already got is to put Jesus back on the cross to shed more blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you see the dilemma? So let's cover some verses. Don't just hear what I have to say about it. I've got some verses for you. Psalm 85.2, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all of their sin. 86.5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all those that call upon you. 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. Hebrews 1, 3. He, Jesus, is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, atonement was job security for the priests of the Old Testament because 
they got to eat all of the sacrifices. It was a perpetual barbecue for them. It was like Brazilian barbecue, but Jewish Brazilian barbecue, <laughs> or Korean, or what, Mongolian, or whatever. Um, so the people sit, they went to the altar, they presented their sacrifice, they, they drained the blood, they put it on the altar, they, tur- they took the animal, they burned it uh, over the, the brazen, not the brazen labor, that's where they washed themselves, but the other altar that had the horns and the, the uh, fire underneath. But once they left and they sinned, they'd have to go back and shed more blood. Over and over and over and over again. So the priests didn't have seats in, in, the, in the temple because they were always busy about this issue of forgiveness of sins. Because with the blood of animals, you could never take away sins. It could never do it. It was only a temporary covering. It wasn't a final removal. And that's what Jesus had to do, um, which animals could not do. So he sat down, the majesty on high, indicating it's finished, it's done, it's complete. You could rest. Jeremiah 31, 34 Thus says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. He was looking forward prophetically to the new covenant. Isaiah 38, 17. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Romans 4, 7 through 8. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Amen. Romans eleven twenty seven. For this is my covenant with them, when I will take away their sins. First Peter three eighteen. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. You'll notice that theme through the book of Hebrews. Once, 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 once. It wasn't repeated, repeated, repeated like the old covenant had to do. It was only buying time until the Lamb of God came to finalize the, the issue with the once and all forgiveness for sins. Um, Hebrews 9.26, But now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he says that he's coming again a second time, and that's not to deal with the payment of sin, it's to deal with sinners who haven't accepted the payment for sin. Isn't that interesting? Jesus isn't coming a second time to deal with sin. Why would that not be in his agenda on the second coming? Because he's dealing with sinners. He already came the first time. That's the Christmas message. He came, born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, born of a virgin, God with us, born so that he might die, so that we might live. So when he comes, he's coming to deal with sinners. And let me ask you, are you a sinner or a saint? You're a saint that sometimes sinned, but you were a sinner, and if you didn't ask Jesus to forgive you, you would die in your sins, and you would have to pay for them yourselves, but Jesus took the wrath, the condemnation on himself, so those that receive his his offer of grace and his offer of love uh, do not have to face the wrath and the condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, Romans 8.1. There's no wrath left over for you. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Look at 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. That's what qualifies him to be the sinless Savior. Titus 2, 14. After he says in 2, 13, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from All iniquity, all means all, and that's all that it means. That's preacher talk, but it's Bible talk as well. Colossians 2.13, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses and having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And when something goes to the cross, it dies. It never lives. The Romans mastered that. And God's using that analogy. Everything that was contrary to you, that separated you from God, Jesus nailed to the cross. 
1 John uh, 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Now hang on. Who's the light? Jesus. Now are you the light also? Are you the light of the world also? Yes. Why? Because you generated your own light? No, because you've received Jesus. How did Jesus get in you? He had to forgive you, to fill you, right? Now the light's within you. Now, fellowship one with another. This is a key word. Fellowship means koinonia. It means joined. It means in union with. Um, same verse, uh, same word in 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He that's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Koinonia. Um, when we talk about communion, it's also uh, koinonia. It's the Greek word used for oneness. So we're one with Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Did you come to Jesus believing you weren't a sinner or that you were a sinner? That you were, right? Right? So if you say that you have no sin, that doesn't sound like someone that says they're a Christian. It sounds like a Gnostic that doesn't believe in the idea that people are sinful. You're self-deceived. And the truth is not in us. Who's the truth? Jesus. Where is the truth in you or out of you? In you. And then there's an invitation to those that aren't in the light, that don't have fellowship, that are deceived, that don't think they're sinners, and the truth isn't in them. Here's the invitation. But if you confess uh, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he makes the same argument in verse 10, uh, using the word is not in us. Here's the point. You have all of your sins forgiven. You have all of your unrighteousness forgiven. It wasn't up to you. It was up to God. And he invites any that does not have his gift of righteousness and does not have his free and full forever and final forgiveness to come and to receive it. And now he writes to believers, and he says, same book, 1 John 2.12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Could there be in the church some people that don't understand forgiveness, that don't understand they're a sinner, that don't have the truth in them, that don't have the light in them, that don't have the word in them, that can be invited to get the full final offer of forgiveness? Yeah. In 1 John 5.3, he says, he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So he goes on to speak about the same truth. But he's writing to believers, and I think we get confused with the pronouns is, is the issue, and we'll cover this more in detail. But I just want you to get the overarching message from the Bible and the New Covenant that your sins are forgiven. Revelation 1.5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins uh, in his own blood. Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Hebrews 10.17, and he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That sounds like good news to me, right? That sounds like the stuff that we say, here's the good news. If you come to Jesus, he will forgive you of all of your sins. And this is the grand teaching of the new covenant, something that the old covenant couldn't promise because it wasn't exactly the good news. So the overview of the, of the new covenant is, we are in a new covenant, a better testament, built on a better sacrifice with better promises, backed upon a better high priest. The cross of Christ was good enough, and it accomplished what God set out to do, to remove our sins and to remember them no more. So the New Testament is based on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, based on his precious, sinless blood. So it's the sinless that died for us, the sinners, because we couldn't get absolute forgiveness, and be filled with the Holy Spirit if we weren't completely forgiven. And that's what the cross provided. So the betterness of the new covenant and the promise is this. Our sins will be once for all 
paid for all. Our sins would be forgotten and forgiven. Uh, Our sins would be cast behind God's back. Our sins would be removed as far as the east is from the west. Our sins would be cast into the depths of the sea. Our sins would be completely cleansed and washed. Our sins would be completely removed. Our sins would be completely blotted out. And our sins would be remembered no more. That sounds like really good news to me and kind of a done deal. But we're like, nope. (laughs) Nope. Too good to be true. Here's some quotes from people that have tried to say the same thing in a different way. God not only gives us a new life in Christ, but a new past. Our sins are not only completely forgiven, but they are completely forgotten. Do you believe that? I do. Shelton Jr. says it this way, Because of God's grace, his unmerited favor toward us, he freely forgives the blackest and vilest of sinners who come to him through Christ. Andrew Farley puts it this way. Forgiveness. It's once for all or nothing at all. Any middle ground is an insult to the blood and cross of Jesus. That's a really good statement. Even in your spirit right now, you're like, nope, too good to be true. Wait, the cross is done? How else are you going to get more forgiveness? than the complete totalitarian, I almost said totalitarian, that's my side brand, (laughs) totality of the overall message that God has trying to convey over and over and over again. And I didn't read all the verses, but I read quite a bit of them, and they were saying the same thing from a different angle. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. So, what does this mean for us as Christians then? It means this. We could now forgive others because we are the forgiven. But here's the thing. You're still dealing with it? You haven't finalized the cross? I don't know. Are you a forgiving person? See, The understanding your identity, that you're a forgiven, filled Christian, frees you from trying to get more of what you already got. I get where you're coming from. I know know you you mess up and you're like, you want to put Jesus back on the cross. You're like, no, I don't want, I mean, I want to get back into fellowship. What does that mean? To get Christ to come back into you, close the gap? I mean... Does he leave you? Does he come back? Does he leave, come and go? We've built whole doctrines based on this whole idea of being in and out of fellowship as somehow God's in you and then he's out of you and then he's in you and then he's out of you. What if he comes back when, you're, when he's out of you? It doesn't make any absolute sense whatsoever. That's why when Paul came to the Corinthians and he's like, look, you're sleeping with hookers? 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you know he that joins himself to a harlot joins the Lord to the harlot also? Why? Because God is in you no matter what you do. The light is in you. So whatever we choose to do as far as walking after the flesh or sin, we sin in the light. It's more of a convenient teaching to think like, well, Jesus, you know, I'll get back to you later, big guy. I got to go do my own thing. And then we'll get back into this fellowship thing. And then we'll, you know, we'll reunite when I'm done having my little flesh party. But if you know that wherever you go and whatever you do, Jesus and God and the Spirit is in you, you join him to what activity, whatever you say, whatever you do, you do it in the very presence of God. Does that make you want to sin more or less? This in and out of fellowship makes you sin more. I promise you that because you're like, well, I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll get right with God. I'll close the gap and I'll be in charge of that whole in and out thing. If you understand fellowship correctly, it's two fellows in a ship. And Jesus ain't going to make you walk the plank and kick you <laughs> down to J- Davy Jones' locker or whatever it is. So whatever you do, you're doing it as two fellows in a ship. You're in the ship with Jesus. If you ain't in the ship, 
you ain't going to heaven because it's not up to you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do a good job of managing your whole in the ship thing because we, we're just not good at it. That's why it's called eternal life. He's never going to leave you or forsake you, even when you do the worst of the worst. Now, what grace does is it causes you to say, well, shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He already answers the question that we naturally contrive uh, as a rejection to grace and forgiveness. Grace has a tendency to rock our sense of, the, of uh, what is fair and just. It's like, it's like we're, we're the Christians that are sitting in church for, you know, 50, 40, 30 years, and some newbie comes along and gets saved, and they're, they're like the worst, and then the rapture happens, you know? Like, wait a second, I've been grinding this thing out for, it's like the guy that came at the 11th hour and got paid the same coin, right, as the other people that have been working all day. So God puts that in the Bible because he wants us to be rocked with our sense of economy of what fairness is and our scales is a lot different than God's grace. So we need to be jostled a little bit because, yeah, it will cause you to say, it's too good to be true. If you tell people that, they're just going to freak out. If you tell people they're absolutely forgiven, what's, gonna, what, what's the leash? What's the red tape? We're get, they're going to freak out. Some people do. That doesn't, that doesn't belittle the finality of the cross, though. And when we know our identity in Christ, that we've been completely forgiven to be completely filled, now let's function on this side of the cross, on the life side, and let's really work out the Christian life because we finalize the cross. You know what we do for communion? We do this in remembrance of what Jesus has finally and totally and once and for all done. Because when he's coming back, it's not to die on the cross for more forgiveness. What more forgiveness could he have done if the cross wasn't good enough? Are you with me on all this? So, we cannot forgive others because, or we could now forgive others because we are now the forgiven. Painters paint, complainers complain, hikers hike, <laughs> gossipers gossip, shoppers shop, lovers love, and forgivers forgive. Look at what C.R. Strahan says. Forgiveness has nothing to do with absolving the criminal of his crime. It has everything to do with relieving oneself of the burden of being a victim, letting go of the pain and transforming oneself from victim to victor. Amen. C.S. Lewis, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. That's freedom. Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it, Mark Twain. You'll know this one. Unforgiveness and bitterness is like drinking poison while hoping that the other person will die. <laughs> I was um, sharing this with someone the other day in a session, and we we're talking about unforgiveness and forgiveness. And I that this one individual absolutely was unwilling to forgive a very hurtful member of their family. We've all been there. That person could even be dead in another state and alive, be living with you. But I said, here's the thing. That person does not absolutely deserve your forgiveness. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. Don't think that you're giving them a gift because they don't deserve it. You deserve it. You need to forgive them for you. You forgive them for you, not for them, for you. And I said, Eric, you'll appreciate this. I said, when I used to live in San Diego, I used to live by the, these little lakes. 
and there was bluegill in them. And I would go fishing as a little boy, and I remember my closed reel face where you press the button on the back to cast it. I hooked up some salmon eggs or whatever, and I, whoosh, I threw it out, and the hook went in my ear. Like I pierced my ear. I'm like, wait, is it with the right side or the left side? I don't want to be on the wrong side of this. this. And I was like, ah! And I, was, I reeled it. Um, <laughs> and because of pain and, you know, reacting incorrectly. And the more I reeled, the more attention and the more it hurt. And I thought to myself, how can I do it? And, and then I, I, I don't forget who was with me, but they cut the line and it released the tension. But yet the hook was still in my ear. And I had a barb. Right? Here, go to the next slide, I think. Yeah, right there. there. That's not the actual hook. <laughs> That's a pretty brutal one. <laughs> but um, just to drive the plane home. So it was stuck in my ear. I reeled it, tension, tension, tension. So someone has offended you. They've got that, their hook in you. The more I concentrate on it, I'm bitter about it, I'm unforgiving about it, they still have a hold on me. And it, the more I think about it, it's like reeling it. It's like it gets, there's more tension, more tension. Sometimes it eases up. You know, we don't dwell on it all the time, but people that are unforgiving are bitter. They, re, they have rumination. They, they're, they're like VCR <laughs> is on loop or their DVDs on loop. It just plays over and over again, over and over again. And it just tugs and tugs and tugs. And when the string is cut, it releases the tension. And here's the thing, though. When you remove that hook, there's a scar. And there's pain. And they're, they're free. They're like, it's free. You're freeing yourself and you're freeing them. So here's the thing about forgiveness. They're free to go. They don't even deserve it. They're free to go. You're, you're releasing them. You're, they're free. But it costs you something. It costs you the pain. Right? You've got the scars. In my case, it was my ear. You know? You've got the scar. And sometimes there's no tension, though, right? Because it's snipped. You might look in the mirror and see it, and, you know, because... We don't have that same ability where God says, I will remove your sin and remember it no more. We remember, we're like, the scars remain. Um, but there's not that bitter, un, that res resenting tension when that person's name comes up. When that person's name or that event comes up, you know what you could do? I forgave them as Christ forgave me. I could release them as I've been released in Christ. I could extend to them what God extended to me. I didn't deserve forgiveness when God forgave me. I was a pathetic, terrible, dirty, rotten sinner when Christ forgave me. I don't deserve forgiveness. What makes me think anyone else deserves forgiveness? They don't. So when I forgive them, I'm doing it the same way God forgave me in Christ, in an undeserving, merciful, gracious way. Jesus forgave me. It was free to me, but it cost him his life. When I forgive others, it's free to them, but it costs me the scars and the hurt and the pain and the memories that don't seem to go away. And I have to work through it. But it's the best thing for you to do. Unforgiveness will eat us up. Unresolved anger and offenses that have not been reconciled and dealt with will turn into bitterness, and bitterness not only affects you, but affects all those around you. So not only forgive for your sake, but forgive for the people around you's sake. Because if you're always dwelling on the past and you're always like keeping a close eye on the mirror and all of your, your scorekeeping and they did that and they did this and they did that and your focus is always on what they've done to you and how you've been offended, it's like you keep reeling and reeling and reeling and reeling and you're not free. And the people around you are like, man, can, you, can, can, you know, can we move on? Can I snip this thing for you? Um, look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. 
bitterness. It causes, look, many, probably many people that are unforgiving and many people around people that are unforgiving become affected by this. We can always forgive all sins because we have all the way been forgiven of all sins. We can forgive others because we have the very life of Christ, the forgiver himself living in us, wanting to forgive others through us. Jesus forgave us. We now have his life, and his life contains his love and his forgiveness. And we have the one who said from the very cross of the people that were stabbing him, spitting, mocking, pulling his beard, gambling for his clothes, making a big mockery and belittling and shaming Jesus. And he said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have the second, the third, the fourth mile Jesus living in us. How many times can we forgive others? 70 times 7. How many times did Jesus have to forgive you? Once. See, the deal with us and God is once and for all. That's the cross. But, but the deal with us? Multiple times. We're, we need to keep forgiving. But Jesus forgave us once and for all. Now, um, we can forgive because we are the forgiven, filled with the life of the forgiver. Here's some other thoughts on that. We're almost done. Christ died for what you've done, but he rose again to be what you are now. That's, that's the gospel, right? The death and the resurrection. We had to be cleansed of everything we were so that we could receive everything that he is. Jesus laid down his life for us so that he could give his life to us so that he could live his life through us. We had to be forgiven so we could have this union with Christ. Ian Thomas says this, I love this quote, if you were but trust Christ, not only for the death he died in order to redeem you, that's forever forgiveness, but also for the life that he lives and waits to live through you, the very next step you take will be a step taken in the very energy of God himself. But how did he get there? By forgiving you. What's he doing there? Forgiving others through you when they offend you. You'll know this. I used to think this was a quote by um, uh, Shakespeare, but it's by Alexander Pope. To err is human, to forgive divine. What does that mean? Because to forgive the way Christ forgave, it's going to take Christ in you, right? I don't have it in me. What I have in me is revenge and wrath and getting back at you and all the movies that I've seen that are not from God <laughs> that are all built on the revenge model, right? The best of the best are like that. Dare I name a few. Um, but look at what happened. So there's this guy in 1 Corinthians. He was sleeping around, doing things that not even the heathen were doing. So they were doing it as a Christian. And so they exercised church discipline on him. And um, he was crushed. And it worked, it worked out what it was supposed to do. It brought him to the end of himself so he would repent. And he turned from his sin. And so Paul's addressing them, and he's like, look, he's going he's gonna to have sorrow to the point of like almost suicide. And he says, now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. So, He's basically saying, if and when we forgive, it's because we have the forgiver, Jesus. I forgive in the person of Christ, and I forgive the way that I've been forgiven, which is I didn't deserve it, yet I received it for free. And he says, as you freely receive, freely give. So that doesn't, when you forgive someone that's offended you, you don't have to do it in person. You don't have to talk to them on the phone. You don't have to write a letter. What if they're dead and you're still harboring bitterness? Are you going to go to the tomb? I mean, there's a lot of like um, therapeutic techniques and interventions that people do to do that, like the empty chair, and there's a lot of different things you could do. But if you just simply determined, I for, I'm letting that person go, I'm cutting the string, I'm taking out the hook, 
and it's painful for me, and they're dead and gone, or they live on the other side of the country. You don't need to go golfing with them, bowling with them, you know, bake cookies together and have a joint Etsy account together. <laughs> you don't have to do anything, but you have to forgive them in order to move on. And if we're unforgiving, could it be that Satan could get an advantage in our lives? So we cannot give out that which we do not have. If you do not have forgiveness because you did not receive it, I don't expect you to give it out. It's just like if you don't have 100 bucks and I ask you for it, I don't expect that you could provide it because you don't have the resources. So if you've never been forgiven completely by Jesus, yeah, then I don't, I don't think you probably have the capacity to be a forgiving person um, because you've never received it. But if you have received it, then we need to grow and understand it's, it's difficult, it's painful, it costs you something. And there's, there's wounds and there's scars and there's tugs and there's pulls because people are, we rub each other the wrong way a lot of times. And we're all, we don't mean to, but we're, we're offensive. And so Jesus says, okay, you know, you guys are going to need to deal with this forgiveness issue one with another. He dealt with it once and for all at the cross. We deal with it continuously uh, with each other. So as Christians, the good news is that we have God's divine resources to forgive others in Christ as we have already been forgiven by Christ. Colossians 1 says it this way. He was delivered. Uh, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us uh, and placed us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the remission of sins. Colossians 3 puts it this way. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender feelings of mercy, kindness, humbleness of minds, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. That means putting up with one another and forgetting, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against any, as Christ forgave you, so also you do. Look at the tense. As Christ forgave you. so also you do. Ephesians 4. Let there be no more bitter resentment or anger. I like that he, the, I usually use the, the King James. Um, I didn't write the, rat, well, I, this might be the new King James on this one. But I like that it uses resentment. Let there be no more bitter resentment or anger no more shouting or slander. And let there be no more bad feeling of any kind among you. Be kind to each other. Be compassionate. Be as ready to forgive others as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. Notice the tense. And then back to where we started, Ephesians 1.7. I think it's the picture slide. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace he has lavished on us. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So you'll notice, like in Colossians, Chapter 1, he tells you that you're forgiven. Chapter 3, he says, now forgive others as you have already been forgiven. Ephesians chapter 1, you have been forgiven. Ephesians chapter 4, now forgive others as you have been forgiven. If we don't know our identity, we will never activate our activity as forgiving people if we do not know that we are already a forgiven people. That's why God front loads the, the epistles. So we can know who we are, so we can know how to act. Amen? So, in conclusion here, are you a forgiven person who has trusted in Christ's death for your sins? Are we a forgiving people who can forgive undeserving people as we have undeservingly received forgiveness of our sins?
So for now, let's rejoice in the fact that as a Christian, our sins are not only completely forgiven, but they are completely forgotten on God's behalf. So let's pray and ask Christ to teach us and to lead us the forgiven to be forgivers. Let's be reflections of Jesus to our church and community, and let's be known as the forgiven who forgive as we've already been forgiven. That could only be done for people that have finalized the cross. If you're still dealing with cross stuff, I'm not saying like ignore it, because that's how we do communion, but understand the new covenant teaching. It's done which it wasn't in the Old Covenant, but it is in the New Covenant. Now, what does the resurrection look like as Christ lives in you, wanting to live his life through you? Would it look like forgiveness given to others if the forgiver himself lives in you? That's what it would look like. And that will take a lifetime. I don't think we ever graduate from that because there's so many moving parts, right? And we all, we all want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, um, but let's also grow in this area of forgiving one another as we've already been forgiven. Amen? So let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have forgiven us. And Lord, teach us how to forgive those around us. We've got scars, we've got wounds. It's, it's impossible to go through life without them, Lord, and Understand that we live in a fallen world with sinners and saints. And Lord, help us to be a compassionate, um, long-suffering, forbearing, uh, gracious people that understand who we are in Christ and what Christ wants to extend to others around us. Uh, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.